Hello, you've just tuned into part two of the story about the Welsh hero Owen Glendore. In part one, we walked through the history of Welsh rebellions against England and the increasingly harsh rule of its current king, Henry IV. We covered Glendore's rise to prominence and ended the episode with the capture and ransom of his hated rival and neighbour, Baron Grey. If you haven't already, I'd recommend listening to that episode to get some context. Still here? Good. Let's get into the final part of Owen Glendore, the last Prince of Wales. As 1401 drew to a close, Glyndor tried and failed to besiege the fortress of Carnarfon in northern Wales. Remember at the start when we talked about the English iron ring around northern Wales? Well, Carnarfon Castle was the diamond in that ring. I've put a few pictures up on our website and Instagram I took while visiting there. It's one of the most formidable castles I've ever seen, and without siege weapons and cannons, it's little wonder why Glyndor's siege failed. Nevertheless, the siege became famous as, during it, Glyndor raced his iconic golden dragon banner for the first time. The banner was the very same used by the mythical figure Uther Pendragon, the father of the legendary King Arthur. The use of this powerful ancient symbol was fantastic propaganda, and I'll be adding a picture of the banner to our website and socials. By choosing this image, Glyndor was styling himself as the successor to these mythical figures of old. He was drawing a parallel between himself and the original inhabitants of the land before the Normans arrived in the 12th century. Building on this sentiment, he had letters sent to the King of Scotland and a few Irish chieftains hoping to secure an alliance. Like his banner, the language used in the letters harks back to their common ancestors. One line says, quote, Your most noble ancestor and mine was the first crowned king who dwelt in this realm of England, which of old times was called Great Britain. End quote. And throughout all the correspondence, he refers to himself humbly as, quote, your simple cousin, end quote. Letters to the French king penned in Latin were also sent, but these took a more my enemy is your enemy kind of vibe. There is also speculation that the envoys were sent in secret to Henry Hotspur, whose frustration with the king was growing by the day. Even now, Hotspur had still not been provided with any funds to defend the borders and was also forbidden from making any concessions of peace towards Glendore. It's likely that these two men came to a mutually beneficial agreement, we'll say. This becomes evident as going forward we see a noticeable drop in the involvement of Hotspur in suppressing the rebellion. And we also see that his properties are coincidentally left untouched by Glyndor's men when he comes raiding. With Hotspur keeping quiet, the king sent another royal expedition into Wales, determined to stomp out the growing rebellion before it reached the south coast, where the majority of English industry was centred around. Sir Edmund Mortimer was put in charge of a large body of men around 2000 all up. The Mortimers were a big deal. Their family's claim to the throne was even stronger than King Henry's, but so far they had served the new regime loyally. By now, Glyndor had many seasoned military men under his command, men who had fought in France, Scotland, and even further abroad. These men knew the land and knew the enemy. Glyndor split his forces, around 1,500 men, into two groups, concealing one in a dense forest behind the battlefield. Mortimer likely thought that the 700 he initially encountered was all Glendor could muster based on previous engagements. As the heavier English soldiers charged down into the Welsh ranks, Glendor and his men held the line, waiting for the English troops to fully commit to the attack. And when Glendor was convinced they were, he gave the signal. 
From the trees behind, the other half of the Welsh army charged into the British flanks and rear. Just when it looked like things couldn't get any worse for Mortimer, a large contingent of his archers defected. Welshmen who had been pressed into service against their countrymen turned and opened fire on the English troops they had just marched into battle with. The Battle of Bryn Glas, as it's known, was an absolute disaster. Glyndor's army, no, the army of Wales, had steamrolled the king's best and brightest in a pitch battle. There was no way to claim that this was an isolated rebellion from a few barefoot Welsh curs. This was now a full-blown war of independence and it was only gaining momentum. Sir Edmund Mortimer was captured with both him and Glyndor expecting a tidy ransom, considering the man's position. But to the shock of both of them, the king completely ignored the request. After jumping to attention to pay Lord Grey's ransom, the complete indifference as to whether this nobleman lived or died was a huge slap in the face to Mortimer. While the king was indeed broke, he probably hoped that Mortimer, with his superior claim to the throne, would languish in a Welsh prison and eventually expire, taking his claim to the grave. But Glyndor was too crafty for that. Mortimer was of sound military mind of high birth. If the king didn't want him, he would keep him. The two men buried the hatchet and Edward Mortimer became part of the family, literally, marrying Glyndor's daughter, Catrin. With this victory on the open field, Glyndor's popularity went international. Welsh apprentices all over England downed their tools and heeded the call to return home. Spurred on by the English king's increasingly harsh laws on people of Welsh descent living in England and abroad. In a way, King Henry IV was the best recruiter Glyndor could have asked for. By constantly chipping away at the livelihood and chances of advancement, the choice to side with Glyndor was an obvious one for the common man. But by 1404, he was no longer simply Owen Glyndor. Understanding the need to legitimise his rebellion, he called a Welsh parliament, the first of its kind. With representatives from all over Wales, France and even Spain, Glyndor spoke passionately about his vision for an independent Wales the Wales of old, before the Norman invaded, subjugated them, and a separate Welsh church in communion directly with Rome. Owen Glendore was crowned Prince of Wales, an ancient title that had been usurped by the British, with the last Welsh Prince of Wales almost 150 years ago. As the Parliament concluded, everyone's spirits were soaring as they looked towards the future. But over in England, there already was a Prince of Wales, the King's son, and perhaps his only trump card, Prince Hal. If you've binge-watched every series on Netflix during the pandemic, you've probably seen the movie The King that features a moody young man decimating the French army at the Battle of Agincourt. Well, this is about the very same prince about a decade or so earlier. His real name was Henry, but we've already got enough Henrys in the story, so I'll stick with Hal. Hal was everything his father wasn't. He was pious, handsome, and brave, a model of every virtue a medieval prince should be. He was a natural leader who, even as a teenager, inspired loyalty from his men in the heat of battle. And although he was as single-minded in his goals as his father, he was not as stubborn and bloody-minded about reaching them in a specific way. If diplomacy could achieve the same result as a long, costly war, he would pursue that first. But at this point, the young prince was in a particularly dark place indeed. After constantly being denied the funds to pay for defence against Glyndor, but still being forbidden to make a truce with him, Hotspur had raised his banners against the king in rebellion, and Prince Hal had been sent to deal with him. In a particularly bloody battle, both he and Prince Hal had been badly injured by arrows to the face. Hotspur had died, and Prince Hal 
had only survived thanks to a skilled surgeon who managed to remove the arrowhead from deep within his cheek. Hal was on the mend, but for now he was out of action. The death of Hotspur was a blow to Glyndor, but when one door closes, another opens. Over in France, the king began to see just how unstable England was. Behind the scenes, Glyndor had worked to form a three-part alliance with Hotspur's father and his hostage-turned-son-in-law, Edwin Mortimer. Both these men were from powerful old families and could call on a huge amount of support from their local districts. A plan was concocted to depose King Henry IV and subdivide England between the three of them, with Wales being recognised as a true independent country led by Glyndor. With a parliament, a monarchy and now what looked to be agreed borders, Glyndor was looking more and more like a ruler of a sovereign nation, and the French king eagerly agreed to an alliance with him presenting the Prince of Wales with a brilliant set of armour as a token of their friendship. Glyndor had just secured the support of one of the most powerful nations in Europe. As state-of-the-art French siege equipment and professional troops disembarked on the coastline of Wales, Glyndor's rebellion went truly nationwide. To the horror of King Henry, castles now began to fall to the Welsh menace. If you remember from earlier, The Iron Ring of Castles was conceived specifically to halt rebellions exactly like this, but there was no contingency plan for what would happen if the castles themselves were taken. The idea that the Welsh could achieve a degree of professionalism on this scale had been inconceivable to the English Parliament and King. With droves of veteran Welsh archers and French siege technicians now under his command, towns and cities surrendered en masse, and castles on the English border made separate treaties with Glyndor, paying his army to spare their possessions. Though a few of the larger castles like Carnarfon, which we referred to earlier as the Diamond of the Iron Ring, held out, Wales was now almost entirely under Glyndor's control. The king would launch numerous punitive expeditions, but in an almost supernatural way, almost as soon as the men would cross the border, the moody Welsh weather turned against him. And if the torrential rain didn't douse the men's spirits, the Welsh longbowmen hiding in the trees did. Spirit soared for Glyndor and his men, who were not only gaining independence, but also vast troves of wealth through the surrender of rich English lords. But although Glyndor and his men had no way of knowing it, this was to be the apex of the Welsh Free State. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. 
Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. With Prince Hal having recovered from his arrow wound, he began to take a leading role in the Welsh campaigns. If you plotted the rebellion on a line chart from an English perspective, it would be a sharp V-shape with the uptick starting with the prince's involvement. Favouring a peace with France and determined to stop the royal coffers hemorrhaging cash, he opened up negotiations regarding marriage to the French king's daughter. With the possibility of a royal heir, the French appetite for war with England, which was already fading, cooled. Slowly, the troops that Glyndor had begun to rely on for his sieges trickled back home. Immediately, he realised what this would mean for the rebellion, and did everything he could to try and re-secure French aid, even pledging allegiance to their Pope. Yeah, at this point in history, there were two Popes, one for France and one for everyone else. After this, things began to turn. The reports from battles in 1405 are incomplete and not too reliable, but it looks as if some medium-ish sized battles were lost by Glyndor's lieutenants. With only a few scattered castles and bastions being controlled by the English, it's believed that his lieutenants assumed these would be manned only by a few men. While, in reality, now that there were so few safe areas in Wales, the remaining garrisons were bristling with grizzled defenders who had nowhere to run and defended the garrisons like their life depended on it, which it probably did. As the fickle loyalty of the population began to waver after these losses, Prince Hal started on another expedition into Wales, but with a very different tone to his father's burn, rape and pillage style invasion. The prince recognised his father's error in how he handled the rebel lords. Rather than doubling down on anti-Welsh rhetoric or declaring them traitors, Hal lured many men back to the English cause by amnesties and pardons. All of a sudden, many men who had taken up arms against the English king due to his increasingly harsh rules now had another option. It's worth remembering that Wales was not a wealthy nor populous country and it had been locked into a state of war with England for now five years. Glyndor's appeal for an independent Welsh state was becoming less appealing, as the farmers, crafters, innkeepers and soldiers that made up his army began to dream of peace. In an effort to keep the veil of legitimacy on his faltering rebellion, Glyndor held a second parliament, and though representatives from Wales were present, there was a noticeable lack of foreign dignitaries. If the backdrop to the first parliament was excitement and hope, this one was gloom and melancholy. But Glyndor fought on. His lieutenants were sent to all corners of Wales to try and reignite the fading embers of Welsh nationalism, but it was no good. Word of Prince Hal's pardons had spread to many prominent lords, and many of the men who had become the backbone of Glyndor's military council began to turn back to King Henry and his charismatic son. Prince Hal further streamlined the process, offering a simple system where an ordinary Welshman who had served in Glyndor's army could pay a fine at one of the local garrisons in exchange for amnesty. And with this, many of the rank-and-file troops too began to melt away. With South Wales and many of the border districts slowly returning to English rule, Hal set his sights on the stubborn northwest of Wales. The northwest had always been the most difficult to subdue. I mean, the Iron Ring was built there for a reason. Aware that these men would not surrender their loyalty so easily, the prince set up a naval blockade around the island of Anglesey. As we said earlier, Anglesey is the most northwest area in Wales and is separated from the mainland only by a thin strip of water. Due to its flat land, it was an ideal place for farmland, 
and with Hal cutting it off from the mainland, the price of food began to rise throughout the war-ravaged realm. The Tudor brothers, who were the island's ruling family, fought back with everything they had. But for the same reason the land was ideal for farming, it was not ideal for guerrilla warfare. Glyndor once again did not fail to grasp the seriousness of the situation, sending further envoys to France pleading for the support of their navy to break the blockade. But the moment had passed. While the French alliance to Wales was a core part of the rebellion, to France it was a policy that could and did change based on the whims of the king. The Tudor brothers gave it their best, but soon, Anglesey, the breadbasket of North Wales, went dark. As severe winter brought more problems for Glyndor, who was already struggling to feed his troops, news from France sunk his spirits even further. France and England had agreed upon a truce, and King Henry had demanded the dissolution of the French-Welsh alliance as part of the treaty, and they had accepted. The slim hope of France re-entering the war was gone. In 1407, Prince Hal and his retinue pummeled Aberswith Castle, one of the most formidable still held by Glyndor's men. Through grit and determination, the men of Wales repelled the numerically superior English army, but at a great cost. With the English army temporarily retreating, the Welsh commander in charge of the garrison asked Glyndor's permission to discuss terms of surrender with the English. Glyndor responded bluntly that if the man dared give terms, he would have his head. Glyndor tried to consolidate his power base to the areas where he enjoyed the most popularity, but by now, English supply lines had been fully restored. Supplies, siege weapons and men flowed in like a tidal wave from the west coast, south coast and from across the border. But still, he would not give in. Making his presence known, he marched his dwindling band of men across the countryside, sacking any villages that had forsaken his cause. In a way, he had come full circle. Reduced to only a handful of men, he did as much damage as he could, carrying away whatever loot was left in the desolated villages. But this time, he found no receptive ears to the Welsh Free State, only sullen and tired men, women and children who yearned for peace. In 1407, Glyndor lost his last two remaining allies. The dream of subdividing Britain between the Percys, the Mortimers, and himself was put to bed after each of them was decisively defeated by the king in separate engagements. Not long after, one of Glyndor's last castles was recaptured by Prince Hal, and within it was Glyndor's wife and many of his children, who were taken back to England in chains and locked away in the Tower of London. The dream was dead, but Glyndor had one last right hook to swing. In 1410, with the last of his supporters, including the Tudor brothers, the last Prince of Wales headed deep into English territory. One last raid to make the English bleed. There was no baggage trains in tow for the loot this time. No one was intended to return. But even this failed to make a dent. The English border towns were heavily defended, and whatever was left of Glyndor's army was defeated or killed, including his most loyal man, Rhys Tudor, who had been with him since the beginning. Rhys was dragged back to London before being hung, drawn, and quartered. This raid was the last verifiable sight of Glyndor in the flesh. After this, Prince Hal removed himself from Wales to focus his attention elsewhere. There were bigger fish to fry now. Sporadic fighting lingered in isolated areas for the next few years, and in 1412, Glyndor captured a Welsh lord and successfully ransomed him back to the English king. 
The letter was to be the last confirmed correspondence with Glyndor, who at this time was probably around 53 years old. After this, the man who was once the bane of England, the man who only a few years back had declared himself the true Prince of Wales to the adoration of crowds, just disappeared. There are few occurrences in history when a man as famous as Glyndor could simply vanish, and it speaks volumes that, even in post-war-ravaged Wales, where the population would have been desperate for money, no one sold him out. Glyndor's disappearance is full of rumours and myths, just like his life was, but one particular story stood out for me above all the others. It goes like this. On a dark and stormy night, a well-dressed gentleman and a servant arrive at the castle of a local lord in southern Wales. The gentleman asks in French if he could trouble the manor lord to rent a room for the night. The lord, impressed with how the man carries himself, agrees and welcomes him into his home. Assuming that he's a foreigner of high birth, the lord asks him to stay a few more nights and the mysterious visitor agrees. Over the next few nights, the manor lord tells the gentleman how he has heard rumours that Owain Glendor is in the area, telling him he sent out many riders to capture this criminal and that he doesn't care if he's returned to him dead or alive. The gentleman listens quietly, agreeing that it would be good if someone was to catch Owen Glendor, if anyone was able to. After four nights and three days, the gentleman and his servant depart from the castle. As he turns to leave his gracious host, Owen Glendor shakes the hand of the manor lord, looking him dead in the eye and telling him, quote, Owen Glendor, as a sincere friend, having neither hatred, treachery, nor deception in his heart, gives his hand to Sir Lawrence Burke-Rolls and thanks him for the kindness and gentlemanly reception which he and his friend experienced from him at his castle, and desires to assure him on oath, hand in hand and hand on heart, that it will never enter his mind to avenge the intentions of Sir Lawrence towards him. End quote. As he watched Glyndor disappear back into the night, Sir Lawrence was dumbstruck and for the rest of his life did not recover the use of his voice. As I said, almost completely untrue, but a great story and analogy for the elusiveness of Glyndor, even when most of the country was searching for him. In 1413, Henry IV, the man whose blatant nepotism and anti-Welsh rhetoric had fueled Glyndor's rebellion 13 years ago, died. His dynamic and now famous son, Prince Hal, stepped up formally to become King Henry V. With his obstinate father out of the way, the new king continued the trend of pardoning those involved in Glyndor's rebellion, even offering to pardon Glyndor himself as well as his one remaining son. This was done as King Henry prepared for a large military campaign in France and perhaps speaks to the fact that maybe he believed Glyndor was still capable of rousing the support of the Welsh into rebellion, which obviously would have caused major problems if he was abroad with the majority of his army. But Glyndor, wherever he was, would have none of it either distrustful of the king's intentions or, even now, unable to let the dream die, he refused. Nothing is certain, but it seems like he died not long after. To this day, no one knows what the last years of the great Owen Glyndor's life looked like. Many stories talk about him eking out an existence in the cave around his old ancestral lands in northern Wales. Another story has him passing his last few years as a friar on one of the estates of his daughter. And another follows a similar vein to so many heroes we've covered on this show that he turned to stone, ready to awaken in the time of Wales' greatest need and retake his country. 
The Glyndor Rising, as it's become known, was the last great rise of Welsh nationalism against English dominion. In a way, it was made possible through King Henry IV's tone-deaf diplomacy towards Welsh people, almost as much as it was through Glyndor himself. Many times when the rebellion was gaining momentum, the king completely disregarded options that may have cooled tempers of leaders like Glyndor or the Tudor brothers. Instead, his insistence on unabated punishment pushed many men, who may have wished to remain neutral, into Glyndor's court. But in a strange way, Glyndor would have the last laugh when around 70 years later, at the Battle of Bosworth Fields, a king of Welsh stock would find himself on the throne. The very same hardened Tudor brothers of Anglesey, who opposed English dominion until the very end, would go on to give us England's most well-known king, the famous womanizer and Church of England founder, King Henry VIII. During my time in Northern Wales, I noticed many small landmarks still pay homage to Glyndor's memory. Most are just small markers, a plaque commemorating a battle, or a cave where he hid, or a flag on a hill. But whatever they are, Glyndor's legacy is there if you know where to look. To me, the most memorable experience was driving down a quiet country road and spotting Glyndor's golden white banner that could be seen peeking out of an old pub, his memory still preserved six centuries later. In BBC's 2002 poll of the 100 Greatest Welsh Heroes of All Time, Glyndor came in at number two. But even more impressive, in the same poll for the Greatest Britons of All Time, Glyndor came in at number 23, beating Stephen Hawking, King Henry VIII and William Wallace, clearly showing that the respect for this man was not just confined to Wales. He was also immortalised when he was made into a major character in the Shakespearean play King Henry IV Part I which was written about 180 years after the event. Che Guevara, the famous Argentinian revolutionary, also apparently drew inspiration from the stories of Glyndor's guerrilla tactics. But for me, I found Glyndor's legacy summed up most poignantly by T.P. Ellis in his book A Story of Two Parishes, where he wrote, quote, He passed away like a mist on his own mountains, with his mission unfulfilled. No man knows when he died. No man knows where he was laid to rest. There is no monument to him, save for the memory enshrined in his people's hearts. May it live there forever. A greater soul, a nobler spirit, never dwelt among these mountains. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.